Welcome back to History Between the Lines in part two of this episode about the British transportation system to Australia. So when they arrived in Australia, most convicts accepted their fate and they cooperated with the penal system and they served out their sentences with good behaviour, knowing that terrible punishments such as being put in an iron gang or sent to a re-offender's prison awaited them if they stepped out of line. But some of them planned and attempted escape. Now, escape itself in Australia was pretty easy, with its wide open spaces and its deserted wilderness, some of which was pretty inaccessible for guards and colonial authorities to get to to recapture escaped prisoners. But survival for the runaway convicts was very difficult. One escape method was to, as I've just said, simply run away into the landscape, something many convicts who were building roads found preferable than to stay put and continue to work through mountain sandstone. But many of the prisoners who did this, some of whom believed, having no proper sense of navigation, that they would eventually get across some sort of land bridge and reach China and freedom, soon died from thirst, hunger or fatigue. Others wandered back to the British settlements as broken people. Those who did manage to survive in the outback and live out there in the wilderness as a sort of primal-like escapee earned the nickname of Bushrangers. Bushrangers soon acquired a reputation as being the enemy of the flogger and the magistrate and the popular poor man's friend. Therefore, they became a symbol of freedom in this prison society. Many bushrangers became highly skilled at surviving in the outback, with them having originally been convict kangaroo hunters. They also survived as, effectively, Australia's equivalent of highwaymen and American Western outlaws, and they ambushed and robbed travellers on the roads and stole sheep, amongst many other things. They often sold their stolen sheep to small landowning farmers who often helped the bushrangers themselves, as did a network of convicts who acted as their informers and supporters. These actions gave bushrangers a romantic Robin Hood-like reputation as a popular bandit, stealing from the rich, helping the poor, But the truth was that most of them were hateful individuals, mainly fuelled by violence and cruelty. They were quick to murder if it helped them in their plundering. Recapturing bushrangers was an almost impossible feat, due, as I said, to the Australian landscape of precipices and gorges, which was perfect geographical territory for evading the authorities. Another escape route was via the sea. Some prisoners stowed away on ships or hijacked them or built their own rafts. Once again, though, most of these attempts were unsuccessful. After a while, ships leaving Australia were soon being rigorously searched by officers and administrators for convict stowaways, many of whom got help from the sailors on board who were sympathetic to their cause. By the 1830s, if stowaway convicts were discovered on board after the ship had left the Australian mainland, they were then usually dumped on one of the islands in the Pacific and were forced to become beachcombers and try and trade whatever washed up onto shore. 
Soon many of these small islands were littered with small convict communities surviving in this way, and this often meant that island cultures were ruined by these convicts' opportunism and violence. So, in short, initial escape was pretty easy, but staying free was much more difficult. For those who escaped and were recaptured or reoffended by committing any other type of crime or misbehaviour, there was no mercy, and they were sent to the prisons within the prison. Many of these penitentiaries were horrible and sadistic, such as Macquarie Harbour, but one of the most notorious penal settlements for reoffenders was on Norfolk Island. Norfolk Island, a spit of land located 1,000 miles east of Sydney, had been abandoned in the 1810s as an island prison for reoffending male convicts, but in the 1820s it was re-established as a place of terror to strike fear into prisoners and dissuade them from committing crime, and to keep transportation itself as a punishment to be feared to prevent felons seeing it as a way to a desirable new life, a view that was beginning to take hold in Britain. Norfolk Island was to be the worst of the worst, the end of the line for the most troublesome and criminally minded convicts, and the furthest point of exile from the English traditions of legal rights. Prisoners of Norfolk Island were not to have any. They served a minimum of ten years there, and a convict's original sentence would then be served out in full when he returned to the mainland, James Thomas Morissette was appointed commandant of the prison in 1829. Convicts laboured on the island from sunrise to sunset, with only one hour off for a meal. Tasks included making bricks, constructing buildings and turning pines into planks. The prison authorities deliberately created a network of informers amongst the convicts to prevent any prisoner solidarity or potential rebellion occurring. This led to dozens of denunciations by convicts against fellow prisoners who were flogged on suspicion. Floggings, again with the cat and nine tails whips, were also given out even for accidents such as breaking flagstones in the quarry which could include hundreds of lashes at one time. Such floggings obviously drew blood, and guards on the island also strapped men to iron bedsteads after they'd been whipped to sadistically guarantee that their wounds would become infected. Flogging generally inflicted psychological as well as physical damage on those convicts subjected to it, it left them feeling powerless, humiliated and demoralised, which led to feelings of self-loathing and worthlessness. On Norfolk Island, convicts could also be thrown into isolation cells as a punishment, which were in total darkness and were soundless, sometimes for months. These actions and system of discipline preserved the terror of this hellish prison and it took iron courage to resist any of this and go beyond silent obedience. But there were at times plans for rebellion and escape prepared amongst some convicts on Norfolk Island. Notably, in January 1834, prisoners led by Dominic McCoy, Henry Drummond and Lawrence Duggan stormed the prison hospital and they and a gang of convicts from the saw pits attacked a jail gang, but they were eventually beaten off by the guards, sabres and musket fire. 
Convicts had also risen up and armed themselves the same day at Longer Ridge, on another part of the island, but they too ran into soldiers from the barracks and retreated in panic. By the end of the day, almost all of the rebels had been captured or killed. Punishment for those captured was obviously sadistic and brutal in the extreme. Double or triple weight irons were attached to them and they were subjected to mass floggings which lasted for hours and were inflicted for weeks. However, the judge sent to Norfolk Island to try and sentence the rebels in June 1834, William Westbroke Burton, who was a very religious Anglican, was so appalled by the prison's depravity that he sympathised with the rebels and in the end, through Burton's efforts to spare as many as possible, only 14 of the 30 convicted mutineers were hanged. Ultimately, nobody ever escaped from Norfolk Island, as the informers amongst the convicts always betrayed them. The island was built to be a horror deliberately, to be the deterrent against convicts on the mainland reoffending. Now, as well as labouring for the government, convicts were also given out to private settlers as labourers or servants. Assigning convicts out to private settlers developed gradually in stages, but by the turn of the 19th century, the government increasingly did this, with 10,800 convicts assigned to private persons by December 1825, as the prisoners then cost the authorities nothing, with responsibility to feed and clothe them now in the hands of their private masters. Now, assignment to private settlers was one of the main examples of transportation to Australia being something of a lottery for convicts. This is because, by chance, some prisoners were assigned to private estates which were run superbly well by their owners, with rewards rather than punishment dominating the management system. One of the reasons for this is because many settlers had previously been convicts themselves, therefore they didn't flog their own prisoners, they had once been one of them, they were sympathetic to their plight, they knew what it was like to be a convict, so they didn't inflict punishment on them. Some settlers even allowed convicts to eat at the same table as them and their family, and the prisoners worked well and were contented. Yet, on the other hand, again, through sheer coincidence, other settlers chained their prisoners, denied them food or drink, and flogged them regularly. How contented a convict was whilst labouring for a private person depended on chance. But again, even those who had bad masters, most convicts in private service knew that any resistance against their masters would probably extend their sentences and delay their release, so they mostly behaved themselves. I should say at this point that the convicts were not slaves, unless they were sent to a re-offender's prison like Norfolk Island, where, as I talked about before, they lost all of their legal rights. Convicts did have rights to shelter, food and protection from summary punishment by masters. The government sometimes stepped in to control a convict's conditions if they felt those conditions were too harsh. 
However, this worked the other way as well. Settlers could also get in trouble if the authorities believed the living conditions of a convict in their care was too soft, as their labour for their master was also meant to be their punishment for breaking the law. Convicts also had a right to complain to a magistrate if they felt they were being badly treated by their master. The kind of labour convicts had to perform for their masters was, like government work, very varied, from being domestic servants, farmers or shepherds. In terms of reward or payment for their labours for private settlers, after the 1820s, the colonial authorities abandoned giving assigned convict servants wages, and they were replaced by a system of rewards, like being given rum, tea or sugar. Convicts working overtime or working out of assigned hours were also often paid in store goods or rum rather than money. Now in terms of getting released, there were three ways a convict could legally obtain their freedom. There was an absolute pardon which restored all of a convict's rights and he could go back to Britain but this rarely happened. Secondly, there was a conditional pardon, where the convict was given colony citizenship, but they could not return to the British Isles. Finally, there was the ticket of leave, which meant that once that ticket was obtained, the convict no longer had to work as an assigned man, and they could spend the rest of their sentence working for themselves, and they could choose where they worked. However, this ticket of leave could be revoked at any time through denunciation, therefore it still enforced conformity. But this ticket was a much sought-after prize for convicts. Some private masters unjustly refused the ticket to their assigned prisoners as they didn't want to lose their labour. This is another example of the assignment of convicts to private settlers being a lottery for the prisoners. Some got generous, compassionate masters, others got exploitative, uncaring ones. In Barry Bradbrook's case, he received a conditional pardon on the 18th of August 1842 after four years in the settlement for his services in policing the colony as a free constable. He received his free certificate in 1844 and found himself a free man in his early 20s. For those who survived transportation, they were given a chance to start a new life in Australia. Lackland Macquarie, an army officer and colonial governor from 1809 to 1821, believed that the penal process could be a place of redemption as well as punishment, and he believed that through this attitude the colony could also be turned into a prosperous British satellite. As mentioned in part one, he improved the conditions on transport ships and softened the colony's criminal justice system, although, as discussed earlier, there was no mercy shown to re-offenders who were sent to hellhole prisons like Norfolk Island, again showing transportation to be a lottery here. Under Macquarie's governorship, convicts were also given jobs suited to their skill set. Macquarie's own doctor was an ex-convict who had been a surgeon in Britain, and they were offered land grants after completing their sentences. 
Due to this attitude and vision, a number of ex-convicts made a fortune after being released and ended up owning vast acres of land far more than they could ever have realistically owned in Britain or Ireland. Many convicts hated the Aborigines, the natives of Australia. As well as racism, this was because escaping into the outback also carried the risk of death at the hands of the Aborigines, who were sometimes used by the colonial authorities to track down escaped convicts and were rewarded for those they brought back. They were seen, therefore, by the prisoners as a treacherous foe on the side of their captors. The convicts also needed a group to look down upon so that they would not see themselves as the lowest of the low and the Aborigines filled this gap in their minds and gave them an embittered comfort and they were often the people convicts took their anger out on which had been built up by their brutal treatment at the hands of the authorities. Convicts took part in massacres of Aborigines, such as at Mile Creek in 1838, where 28 men, women and children were murdered. This hatred was mutual. The Aborigines despised convicts, whom they saw as slaves, labouring under humiliating conditions they would never have tolerated. The conflict between the two continued after convicts were released and became free settlers. Aborigines attacked their farms and huts, which were encroaching on their hunting grounds and routes. This degenerated into a cycle of violence between the two, and the hatred was passed from one generation to the next. Now, the experiences of female convicts sentenced to transportation was very different to those experiences of male convicts. The vast majority of women convicts were transported for theft, usually of quite a petty sort. They were looked down upon by almost everyone, whereas the idea was present that male convicts could in theory be redeemed and given a fresh start and a new life as an honest law-abiding citizen, as people like Macquarie believed, there was almost no chance of redemption for female criminals who were seen as crude and raucous, which brought forth no pity from their social superiors. This fitted in with the general perception of women during this period as being worthless, and the oppression of women in Georgian Britain simply continued in Australia, only in an even more brutalised form. Such brutalisation soon became the social norm there. As soon as they became convicts bound for Australia, many women prisoners, like male convicts, despaired, became demoralised and ashamed of themselves at what the cycle of poverty they had fallen into had ultimately led them to. Others tried to escape. From the beginning, female convicts were exposed to sexual abuse. Sailors on the voyages to Australia often picked a female convict who was forced into cohabitation with him during the trip. Once in Australia, this abuse continued and female convicts were placed on a grotesque sort of show for men to pick and choose the women they wanted. Army officers chose first and the last to pick were ex-convict settlers. The colonial authorities did want women convicts in Australia, partly so that they married male prisoners and the colony could then grow in population. But in reality, sexual relationships outside wedlock were much more common. 
This was because a female convict soon learned that her best chance of survival was to become the girlfriend of an authority figure who could offer her protection, such as army officers. It was also an English working class habit at this time to cohabitate rather than marry, which is why many convict couples who had many children together were unmarried. Any women who were not chosen at this horrible market when they arrived were sent to labour in places like the female factory in Parramatta. The factory was a loft above a jail where the women made Parramatta cloth from which the convicts' winter clothes were made. Conditions in the factory were appalling. The place was filthy, the toilets stank and the roof leaked. Women who got pregnant on assigned service were also sent to the factory. Men could arrive at the factory and pick an inmate to be his bride. A number of women saw this as one of the best ways to escape and readily married this stranger with the intention of running away from him as a free woman as soon as possible. Acts of rebellion in such factories also flared up through riots, and in 1829 there was an attempt to burn down the Hobart factory. Women re-offenders were also sent to Norfolk Island in its early days, and again they had no rights except the right to be fed, and they had to fend for themselves against the male prisoners and the guards. As a result of all this abuse, alcoholism was present amongst a number of female convicts, which only fueled the belief that they were beyond saving and reinforced the image of them as tempted eaves, addicted to alcohol and promiscuity, without the realisation that the authorities' own brutal treatment of these women had led to them becoming trapped in this horrible situation. Such abuse left lasting scars on their physical and mental health. So, the transportation system didn't last forever. By the 1840s, private settlers in Australia were complaining of the constant arrival of fresh convicts. Increasingly at this point was the growth of an alternative British penitentiary system, in short, imprisoning convicts in Britain in prisons as a punishment in and of itself was increasingly becoming the norm rather than sending them to the other side of the world. There was also public criticism and liberal outrage at the brutal elements of the system at home and in Australia, and this all meant that transportation steadily began to decline during the 1850s, and in the late 1860s the British penal system came to an end. One of the most interesting features of the British transportation system, I think, is the fact that transportation was ultimately a lottery for those convicts who were sent to Australia. As I mentioned before, it was a lottery over what kind of private settler a convict would be assigned to, but more generally the entire experience was, for some prisoners, a fresh start and a chance to have a completely new life with new opportunities with much higher levels of success and happiness than in the life they had been taken away from in Britain or Ireland. Some convicts also found personal happiness and met their lifelong partners and had a family in Australia, yet for others, life in Australia was years of misery, pain and loneliness, and for many of them it ended with their untimely death. 
which sort of experience a convict would have in Australia depended upon circumstances, which included the type of person the prisoner was, like their levels of good behaviour or their ability to know when to say or do the right things, where they were put in the colony, which determined what sort of work they would have to do, and just sheer luck, really, I think, mainly determined all of this. This made transportation a gamble. Chance decided what kind of life prisoners would have in Australia. It was a lottery. It's also incredible to think that transportation could be given to someone as a punishment who had committed such a minor crime by our standards. Barry Bradbrook is the perfect example of this. He was aged around 14 to 15 when he was sentenced to seven years transportation, which, as I said in part one, was almost a guarantee that he would never see his family, friends or his home again, and in his case, he didn't. And it was for the theft of one silk handkerchief. Seven years for that. And such a system which sent him to the other side of the globe obviously transformed his life and his character forever as it did for all transported convicts. This is seen most clearly when we look at the last part of Barry Bradbrook's life. After his release by 1846, Barry was in Adelaide and he had become a local businessman and he opened his first store, the greengrocer and general dealer business in Hinley Street in Adelaide later that year. A year later he opened a butcher's shop and on Christmas Day 1848 he married Harriet Porter. Berry's main business enterprise was as a farmer and landowner. In May 1853, Berry purchased 33 acres of prime market garden land in Athelstone, and in July 1857, he bought another 22 acres. Berry and Harriet had seven children. Berry died on the 2nd of October 1865, aged about 43. Berry's life as a convict again shows how transportation was a lottery, and for Berry he was extremely lucky in this lottery, and became a successful businessman and a happy family man. Over the following decades, the Bradbrook family has expanded into an enormous dynasty, which has flourished in a range of occupations in Australia, Today, Athelstone is a suburb of Adelaide, and it has a street in it named Bradbrook Road. Once again, it's incredible to think that, but for what happened in the Moot Hole courtroom in Essex and the British transportation system, there would not be a large business and family empire in Australia today, and a street in Adelaide would not bear the surname of the court's young defendant who was sentenced to transportation there on that October day in 1837. So, thank you for listening to this episode of History Between the Lines. If any of you want to, you can visit the Moot Hole in Malden, Essex, and see the courtroom still preserved in its 19th century form, which was how it would have been when Berry was sentenced there. I highly recommend the Moot Hole in general. It has 600 years of history behind it, and it's one of the best historic buildings that the county of Essex has to offer. So once again, thank you for listening. See you later. Goodbye.